everybody on the bus, we're taking you to school because this is where the money is. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Tyler Riggs. Good David to be here. Hansen is on vacation today, so you're stuck with me. It's all right. I can do that. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Well, how's your summer been so far? We took a little bit of a break. Yeah, so now we're yeah. Back. It's been good. It's been good. Can't complain. You know, I'll come in here every once in a while, teach the world, educate the world to invest better. It goes so well. You ready? So. I think ready so. To do this? I all think right. so. So, like I said, we're taking you guys to school today. We had a nice summer. Now it's time to get yeah. back into learning mode. Absolutely. And so today we're going to answer three questions, or actually we're going to give you three questions that you need to answer if you are planning on investing in a bank. Your Indeed. bank investing checklist, if you will. Mm-hmm. All right. So first off, though, why do I even need a checklist? Sure. So I think it's something where people always think, I know which stock I want to buy. Why don't I just buy it? But I think the important thing is you need this checklist because you need to try as hard as you can to remove the emotion from your investing. It's very easy to get caught up in seeing a number you like or a stock getting beaten down, but you really liked it for a while, and you just want to jump in and buy it right away. That can be a little bit, a little bit dangerous because you are letting your emotions sort of guide you on that purchase. So what the checklist does is it's a set list of questions to make sure you've sort of covered all your bases, to make sure you're not missing anything, and to make sure also you're looking sort of objectively at how you're investing. You can actually ask yourself these questions and maybe your reasoning for this might not be that strong. So maybe you want to step back and then think about maybe it's not the right time yet or maybe I need to wait for another opportunity. Three questions sounds a little too simple, but let's, let's sure. get into it, shall we? Yes. All right, the first question to ask is where's the money coming from? Absolutely. Fitting for this show title, I think, too, so where the money is. So, yes, where the money is coming from. Basically, with banks, we want to look at each little segment of how they lend out their money. Basically, if we get into... Things like investment banking, you know, you'd see a lot with maybe like a J.P. Morgan Chase or a Citigroup, those type of companies where they have a lot of their chunk coming from this investment banking, banking segment, which I kind of would interpret as their best efforts to sort of predict where the future is going, essentially. But with core banking, it's sort of understanding your customers, understanding who you're lending to, and I think that's something that's much more within the reach of what a bank can control. Right, so one of the criticisms about investing in banks is that they're just too complicated. Mm-hmm. There's no way an inv- individual investor could understand them, let alone people who even are working at the bank. Exactly. So you're saying those are the banks, investment banking, maybe avoid, yeah. head to your neighborhood bank for investing sure. ideas. Sure. Uh, a Wells Fargo, a U.S. Bancorp, Huntington, these are banks that are generally doing things for the most part that are sort of that core banking business. And then as far as the investment banks, it maybe might be a little too complex. Sure. So you've got J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup. They get a sizable chunk of their revenues from investment banking. And then you've got companies like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley who are predominantly investment bankers, which... Right there, for me, in my checklist, I would just sort of cross them off the list and say, look, I'm going to stay with my core competencies and not really try to understand these things. I think it's something where the more you can convince yourself that you might know them, the harder you might fall if you actually didn't really know them. All right, so focus on your, those companies that focus on core mm-hmm. banking, All right, which brings us to our second question that yep. you need to ask. What sets this bank apart? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to companies like Huntington, Wells Fargo, what are you looking at in the ways that they can kind of set themselves apart? How do they do that? Sure. So I think sort of jumping back to number one where we said core banking is fairly simple. Looking at the, these core bankers now, we want to say that's sort of a simple process that a lot of banks are doing the same thing. It's sort of a commoditized business. There's no real way to set yourself apart 
just on banking. It's usually people are going to go with the lowest rate available to borrow from. So there are other things that banks are doing to sort of set themselves apart. Um, you can see, you know, low-cost deposits, which is what Huntington sort of is a big beneficiary of, um, a strength in cross-selling, which is Wells Fargo's ability to sort of get their customers into multiple products, not just a mortgage, maybe an auto loan, uh, credit cards, you know, checking, savings accounts, things like that. Uh, Bank of the Internet is one that's got sort of sets itself apart by being an extremely lean operation, focusing not on building any sort of physical branches, but just using technology to get out there to compete with the big guys, not on physical scale, brick and mortar scale, but more on just their reach. And finally, you've got just sort of strong customer service. You know, people have a you know, strong attraction to a bank like Huntington. And I think that's another way to set yourself apart from the pack. How, where can you find like numbers to sure. help you with you know such a strong customer service? Mm-hmm. Where do you find that research? So I think one of the easiest ways is to probably look at each bank's annual report. You'll see what they f- choose to highlight in their report, the letter from the chairman, uh, even the uh, investor presentations too. You'll see what metrics they use. There are some basic metrics that are you know universal to all banks. But you'll see some of them have more. Uh, metrics they use just just for that sort of business that they use as their competitive advantage. You'll always see Wells talking about how many products per customer they can get them into, basically because it is incredibly cheaper to get them into a new product and incredibly more profitable than to try to find a new customer to you know start them off with their first product. So I'd say, yeah, the annual report and the investor presentation are two great places to start to learn about what's important to those banks. So that makes it hard, though, to make an apples-to-apples comparison. Absolutely. If one bank is... Every, every bank is going to say, we pride ourselves mm-hmm. on customer service. Yes, yes, service. that's a good point. So how do you... I mean, how do you really be savvy sure. and really dig into that? Sure. So I think there's also external uh, metrics or surveys. You know, J.D. Power, you hear about them all the time with car companies, but that's also... They do that with banking relationships as well. Um, you can see where customer loyalty is stronger. There is There are market differences between banks. And I think that's something where the data does not lie there. There's something there that a Huntington is doing to keep those customers and to keep them happy. All right, let's move on to the third question that you need to ask. And here comes some fun math time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the relative valuation? Sure. All right, so what are we talking about when it comes to banks? So relative valuation. It sounds scary, but essentially we're just looking at, say, uh, our target bank, the, the, the bank we're interested in investing in, first their peers. And we're not going to use P.E. here, price-to-earnings ratio. We're rather going to use price-to-tangible book value, which is essentially the, the assets, the tangible assets minus their liabilities. What's their net worth of that business? Um, and where am I going to find this number? You can find it basically on the same places you'd find P.E. Any sort of, uh, you know, Morningstar, Fool.com, any sites that have those metrics, they should have, if they're worth their salt for looking for uh, bank stocks, they should have price-to-tangible book value there. Okay, good. So I don't have to... to crunch the numbers. No. All right. So how do the banks break out when we're looking at price to tangible book value here? So you can see a pretty wide divergence between, say, a U.S. bank corp, which is trading at 2.7 times tangible book, all the way down to a Bank of America, which is a little over 1.1 times tangible book. And I think that shows right there that there's a pretty wide spread there. So there's got to be some difference between these banks, whether it's understandable operations, going back to the first question, or whether it's those sort of intangible, uh, how they set themselves apart from the crowd. Uh, But one thing I do think is important, especially with bank investing, is to not just think that cheap is better. 
a lot of investors, when they deal with banks, they just look at the price of tangible book value. They just take this third investing checklist question and just look at that. And I think that's sort of a dangerous and not the best, probably the best strategy to do. Um, you look at a U.S. bank, which is you know 2.7 times tangible book. Wells Fargo's a little over two two times. They look really expensive there. So you think maybe they're not that great of investments, but they're expensive for a reason. They're well-run operations there. And I think another important thing, and this is where the math sort of gets in a little bit, is the price to tangible book value. So that denominator, this ra- these ratios for, say, U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo have stayed fairly constant since 2009, maybe even dipping a bit. But if you think about that, that's, that price is appreciating, so that denominator needs to appreciate as well. So if you look at these companies, you see a really healthy growth in their tangible book value. And I think that's something that not a lot of people are looking at. They're just looking at the numerator, the price. We need to take both of those uh, in conjunction with each other. Right. So your point about looking a little deeper, looking at the trend with Mm -hmm. that company, um, is there like a general rule of thumb that people use as well? Like is, because we're looking at JP Morgan's 1.3, or do you only look at like relative price to book? I think it's something where you'd want to look at Try to find as close of a peer as possible to that bank. It's tough. A lot of every bank is going to be slightly different. They're going to have different, larger investment banking segments, larger credit card segments. It's tough to compare them apples to apples. But I'd say try to find as close of peers as possible and say what makes my bank trade higher or lower than peers, and do I think it should be trading higher or lower than peers? And I think that's where you sort of make those decisions there. All right, so taking all these three, these three questions to recap. Mm-hmm. First one, where's the money coming from? Yep. What sets this bank apart? Mm-hmm. And what's the relative valuation? Yeah. So going off of your checklist, what are some companies, some banks that we should put on our watch list? Sure. So I'd say, um, again, they're good examples of how you need multiple questions. You can't just look at one metric. I think U.S. Bank Corp., and Wells Fargo, not really a surprise for any, any bank investors. Wells Fargo is essentially the gold standard um, because they are focused on mortgages. They're focused predominantly on that core uh, business of lending. You do not see a giant investment banking arm at all. So that's something that I can understand. Um, I understand Wells Fargo's metric of cross-selling. It, they, have, you know, they provide ample evidence to why cross-selling is important. And if you just think about it, it makes sense. Getting per- people in more products and making them happy with those products is sort of making sure that they're going to stick around longer, and it's much easier to add on additional products as well. Um, and then, again, I think it's a good exercise in terms of not just looking at that individual metric, where these are not cheap banks, but they have not been cheap for a long time, and you would still have gotten a really great return by investing, even when they were just as expensive. All right. So those are the banks you like as an investment to keep mm-hmm. an eye on. Are you a customer of any of these banks? I am not. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, still Bank of America. But Really? Yes. So wow. I'm ashamed to say it. That's okay. That's all right. You're, you're in a safe place. <laughs> all right. Well, that's going to do it for today. Right. As we close every show, I assume, let me know if I do this wrong, because usually David does this wrong. But you can follow us on Twitter at TMF Financials. That's Got TMF it. Financial Plurals. And if you want to send us an email, ask us a question, demand that we get David Hansen back here replacing me, you can email us at WTMI at Fool.com. That's WTMI. Stands for where the money is at Fool.com. All right. Well, for Tyler Riggs, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.